Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'm excited about the conference on Saturday that we're yes. going to. Woo-woo! Conference, two days. We're heading down tomorrow. We'll be making a little road trip to D.C. for the Black LDS, sorry, third annual Black LDS Legacy Conference. Um, been going for the last couple of years. Really excited. Like we said last week, this podcast was basically conceived there, so it's going to be really special for us to get to go back and also sit on a panel for one of the, uh, you know, for one of the panels. We'll be talking about uh, Christian social justice. So if you're in the DMV, definitely pull up. If you're not in the DMV, it will be streaming live on the Black LDS Facebook page. We will, I guess, put a link to that in the notes, and we'll also try to uh, share the actual live stream to our own Facebook page the day it's happening. Our particular panel will be happening, I believe, uh, between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. I'm not totally sure, but I'm pretty sure that's when it is. I, I can look that up while we're doing the show, but yeah. that, that's what it's looking like. And also one more thing. You guys, I don't know who's doing it, but uh, our numbers have been surging quite a bit lately. We have, um, you know, I know we talk about it at the end of every show, encouraging you guys to like share the stuff or whatever. But um, we really do appreciate you guys just otherwise going out of your way to share episodes of the show, talk about what has been meaningful to you guys, and just otherwise, um, you know, share the goodness with your friends, with your family, and the different social media forms you're a part of. It really means a lot because, um, you know, obviously, Derek and I enjoy this a ton, but it means a lot more to us when we see that uh, what we're doing here means a lot to people enough that they just go out of their way to share it. So we really appreciate you guys for that. By all means, keep doing it. But um, I just noticed that this week, a lot of folks seem to be doing it, and uh, it really meant a lot. So thank you, guys. You know, I want to say something that's quite bold about that. From uh, There's a theological point to be made here. Okay. I remember President Monson saying something like, history turns on very small hinges, and you never know what one tiny action can do to really uh, change the course of the future. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it sounds like by small and simple things. Is that what this is about to turn into? And I think that just by sharing our podcast, you can you can uh, you could perhaps even literally save a life, but you could also keep a family together. You could keep people um, flourishing in a certain way. There's just so much good that this can do, and just the little things that we're doing. Who knows the the next mm. prophet. Well, not the next one, but maybe <laughs> in 50 years, yeah. the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints could have grown up listening to our podcast. Perhaps. We don't know. I mean, that's kind of eerie just to think about. You know, we, you never know because I think right. so many of the changes in our church come through these little backdoor ways that someone knows someone who knows someone uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and just those little fortuitous, circ- almost coincidences are the the little small hinges on on which a big ship can turn although i mixed my metaphor there it's all good yeah i smell what you're cooking you <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah man so uh yeah. so yeah keep sharing you never Definitely. know what what you can do by this there's like each little thing we do and each little act of standing up against white supremacy or against sexism or homophobia or trans each little one of those steps can be a small hinge that can really change everything Definitely, definitely. 
Before we jump into the news, just wanted to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. I just want to point out in that little spot, they take pains to make sure we know that it's all one word. Like, do they not know how web addresses work? Dialoguepodcast.com. Web addresses are always one word. There's no spaces in there. But we thank you for the clarification. No shade. Dialogue Podcast Network. Still love you guys. Thank you for letting us be a part of you. (laughs) I'm I'm so petty. All right. So we got uh, one item of news uh, for this particular week. A couple of days ago, uh, Saints Volume 2 dropped in the Gospel Library app. Did you happen to see that, Derek? I did, and I read one chapter out of it. You read a whole chapter already? Yeah, yeah. Goodness. I thumbed through the thing like just to see what's going to be new in this particular volume. Um, like, I don't know, man. Like... I don't know how you felt about Saints Volume 1, but it seemed like the subject matter covered in Saints Volume 2 just further cracked open the history of the church in a way that hadn't before been cracked open. There's a new layer of transparency, I feel like. Like, I feel like there's quite a bit of transparency in here with regard to gender, race, global culture, Mm -hmm. and uh, and the fallibility of leadership. That's a big one. Like, um, I saw the stories that came out about it. about it talk a lot about Brigham Young talking about his own fallibility and dare I say his own racism to a degree like he didn't address it directly as such and they don't go into a horribly a horrible amount of detail with regard to that but I thought that was kind of cool that an official volume produced by the church is actually addressing this stuff you know talking about the prophetic infallibility and talking about the the apostles you know, not necessarily getting along or occasionally having heated debates about certain points of doctrine, including the whole race and the priesthood thing. Um, somebody directed me to page 182 and 183 that talks about how uh, Brigham Young himself. You know what? I'm going to just pull it up here. Yeah. While you're pulling that up, I want to say that I think it's marvelous that this is happening. And it's. I'm glad that it's not written for scholars and academics. It's written for normal people, which means... That's even more transparent because then everyone in the church, yeah, it's accessible to them and, and people will read it. It's engaging. It's almost page turning, uh-huh. um, really well written in a narrative flow. And so I'm, I'm glad that it's out there. I'm glad that and I, this book, uh, this volume addresses really tough things like mm-hmm. polygamy and yeah. the um, Mountain Meadows Massacre, stuff that needs to be out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stuff that needs to be addressed. So that peep this. This is page 182, right at the top of it. This is talking about uh, Brigham Young declaring publicly for the first time that people of African descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood. Before this time, a few black men had been ordained and no restriction existed then or afterward for other races or ethnicities. As he explained the restriction, Brigham echoed a widespread but mistaken idea that God had cursed people of black African descent. Yet he also stated that at some future time, black saints would have all the privileges and more enjoyed by other church members. Apostle Orson Pratt, who served in the leg, leg, is it legislature, 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 opposed allowing slavery in the territory and warned lawmakers against inflicting slavery upon a people without the authority of God. Okay, Orson, we see you. Quote, shall we take then the innocent African that has committed no sin? Close quote, he asked and damn him to slavery and bondage without receiving any authority from heaven to do so. 
Orson Spencer also had some words to say about it, but uh, won't go too much into that. But this is this is the kind of content we got in this latest um, Saints volume. It's it's big. It's like six hundred pages, maybe more. I don't know, but. Um, there's a lot in here, like talks about the slavery of racism, talks about women giving blessings with the authorization of the prophet. It talked about Brigham Young saying he was fallible enough, fallible, although God could still use fallible people to accomplish the things. Talked about the first presidency being not omniscient and they could only see it and they couldn't see any further into the future than other Latter-day Saints. Another point of doctrine. Amen, that's been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we've talked about that on the show before, but this is cool that it's actually in the official volume of the church. There are also uh, intelligent discussions about abuse in marriages, divorce, how sometimes the top leaders of the church quarrel and disagree, and many key characters and stories from non-U.S. places like New Zealand, Samoa, Denmark, the U.K. Um, again, not any particularly exhaustive discussions of uh, you know any of these topics, despite the length of the book, but this degree of transparency and what we're seeing in this volume is definitely something to be celebrated, definitely something to be lifted up a little bit. And it reminds me a lot of our scriptural narratives. They are really raw and bold about what Noah did, what David did, yeah. what Peter did, what basically yeah. everyone but Christ mm-hmm. had some major mistake. Moses, you know, there's just a lot of uh-huh. people, um, Aaron and the golden calf. There's just so many of these things there yeah. that really should give us more central respect for God and less idolatry for God's servants. Yeah, definitely. Anything else you want to say about uh, this particular volume, this new Saints volume? Well, I'm really eager to read it. I think a church um, where the the upcoming generation is raised reading this, where investigators and new converts are reading these volumes, will be a different church. Mm, it will be a very different church. I think one that's more responsible, one that's healthy, one that's more sustainable in the long run. I think we've, uh, in the past had narratives that aren't really sustainable mm. and those can can really fall apart for people and make families you know, devour one another and and cause people to leave the church and i just think that getting these narratives out there and not being afraid of them is is really important it's almost like coming out the people who love you they're going to still love you mhm and I think we as a church need to come out about some of the challenging parts of our identity and our history. Um, otherwise, it will cause problems later because it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out sometime. Yeah. Why not just... Just put it out there. Put it out there. And that's actually what the, the section that I read. Um, I read, I think it's the 10th chapter about the, the pu- first public announcement of polygamy in the 1850s in Utah. Mm. They said, let's, let's actually just get that out there and announce to the world that this is what we're doing. Mm. And that's kind of kind of what their logic was. It's actually more hurtful to hide it than it is yeah. to, to name it. Definitely, definitely. Well, there's uh, shifting gears just a little bit. Did you know that Joanna Brooks is coming out with a new book? I'm I'm not sure. I think I heard something about this, but I can't remember now. Yeah, Mormonism and White Supremacy is apparently the title. Oh. Did you hear about this? No. No, yeah. then I didn't hear about this. I don't think so. Okay, I'm kind of excited about it. Um, you know, I like Joanna Brooks's work and uh, you know, obviously 
has written great things in the past. I'm very anxious to see what she has to say about Mormonism and white supremacy. Like we've had works addressing this topic before. You know, we've had Paul uh, W. Paul Reeves' book, Religion mm-hmm. of a Different Color. We've had what's that dude's name? Max something race in the. Gosh, I forgot the book. What is that freaking book? I'm gonna Google this real quick. Yeah. Some on Mormonism and race. I don't know what it is. Mormonism and race book. Race and the Making of the Mormon People by Max Perry Muller. Like oh, that's yeah. That's the other one. I had that on my bookshelf. Still haven't finished it, but my mom gifted me Religion of a Different Color like several years ago, and I really enjoyed the uh, treatment of the issues, like historically speaking, with regard to Mormonism, their eventual embrace of white supremacy as a means of protection, kind of like an institutional code switch. And of course, uh, you know, discussing the issues of priesthood ban and the subsequent effect on missionary work as well as black member retention. So I'm going to be very interested to see what direction Joanna Brooks decides to go with this book. I don't know when it's coming out, but I will get an opportunity to read it sometime before the summer starts. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, put you on to do some game, Derek. There's going to be a new Mormonism book on white supremacy. Anyway. Before we move on to the Come Follow Me, and that is 2 Nephi, looks like 11 to 25, just want to let you guys know that the gos- about the Gospel Tangents podcast, which explores Mormon history, science, and theology from the best experts in the field. We talk to witnesses of history, BYU professors, apostles, and hopefully prophets and presidents from the many different restoration branches and non-believers to cover a 360-degree view of Mormonism. Okay. So, Derek, we are about to go into probably the hardest part of the Book of Mormon to get through. In fact, I've heard several jokes about... <laughs> I've heard those jokes, too. Okay. I'm not going to repeat any of them because, one, I'm not the jokes guy on the podcast. That is not my role. <laughs> you are the jokes guy. But also just, this was pro- this is probably, no matter how many times I read the Book of Mormon, like the Isaiah chapters are always difficult for me to go through. I could not get through them without a hefty amount of uh, study aids because I'm like, I'm not getting anything from these and I would like to get something from these because this is a significant portion of the book of Second Nephi and I would hate to not be able to get anything from it, especially considering I didn't exactly read ahead with regard to what the, you know, what the chapter breakdown was going to look like for this particular week. But I was really grateful that they capped it off with... Uh, with uh, chapter 25, which mm-hmm. in essence is a summary of the prophecies. In fact, Nephi begins by saying, the words of Isaiah aren't clear to you because I didn't exactly instruct you in the ways of the Jews. So let me tell you what he said yeah. in plain terms. And uh, then he proceeds to you know, tell him what he went over. He, I have an idea, especially for those that are doing missionary work, which should be everyone, uh-huh. is to ask your friends like missionaries come and tell the, tell people to start at first Nephi chapter one. And my suggestion would be, and I'm sure there's different ways like God meets people where they are. So there could be, but I would suggest people start with Mosiah, read to the end, then rewind and then do the first and second Nephi. And so you end up front loading Mosiah, which has a lot of very interesting and compelling narratives, really good sermons, really oh, yeah. accessible. 
um, you get King Benjamin right away. I mean, that is really radical. Oh, yeah. I speech. love the You'll first four that. chapters of Mosiah. I love King Benjamin's sermon. And the other thing about that is you end up getting it in the order in which it was probably translated because what happened was Joseph did the first 116 pages first and then lost them, but he didn't start over from the beginning again. He started where he left off in Mosiah, and then at the end, apparently, he went back and translated uh, the books to replace uh, the book of Lehi, which we no longer have. Mm. And that then you get to see, well, how did Joseph go through this? And you get to see how that plays out. And some of it makes more sense. I also don't like ending at the end of Moroni because it's a tragedy. I, I fixed that by just putting that <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> like So I'm doing it all wrong. But I mm-hmm. really like reading it that way. I see. Starting at Mosiah and then rewinding halfway through. Okay. But I just wanted to say one thing. I could talk for a long time about Isaiah. But the one thing I want to say about these chapters from Isaiah is you've got a rhythm that flows between two different I guess poles or themes one is judgment and the other is hope and Isaiah almost dances between the two of them Mm. you have the judgment foretold upon Jerusalem you've got Assyria and Babylon they're really endangering Jerusalem and uh, here's what's what's interesting about that is in some ways the, the judgment feeds into the hope and the hope feeds into the judgment and they're really a foundation for each other mm-hmm. because when you've got the judgment here, it's actually done as a um, sort of a refining power. That is, oh, I'm going to take Jerusalem and we're going to have some calamities, but that's actually going to refine and purify and we're going to make a new thing out of it. So in that way... Hope ends up being the ground or the basis for the judgment. God isn't judging them to get rid of them. He's judging them because of the hope that it will lead to. And Mm -hmm. likewise, um, the judgment can be the foundation for the hope because what that does is it it tells the Israelites that God keeps his word. That if you know that God has been faithful in these judgments, then he's going to be faithful in everything else he promised, including the hope. Yeah. And I think Nephi included these chapters which kind of swing back and forth like a pendulum between the judgment and the hope because that's probably what his community was going through at this tough time after Mm. the death of lehi he's giving this wisdom to the future generations and then also to us Mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense that the the difficulties that they've gone through Mm -hmm. are contrasted with the 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 coming of the christ the messiah that's the central part of where Nephi is taking Isaiah. In fact, that's like once by the time we get to Second Nephi twenty-five, that is one thing that he seems to take, make an extra effort to you know make sure that the people get is that this is all leading to this is ultimately all leading to Christ. And with what we're going to be spending the balance of our time talking about with regard to Second Nephi twenty-five, Nephi seems to want to make sure that the people know about Christ and know about you know his role you know, in this whole process. And that's after he talks to them about a lot of judgment, about a lot of hope. He talks about the scattering of Israel a bunch mm-hmm. in addition yep, to a bunch of, sorry, you got. that. That's one of the, the judgments and the punishments. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
in addition to all the other uh, messianic prophecies, a lot of prophecies of Christ and a lot of... Uh, yeah, and that's the hope. That is the hope. You're right. Totally the hope. Um, if we get some time, it'd be cool to talk about some of these more specific things in uh, the book of Isaiah. There are some things that just hit my eye a little weird and I... Uh, just on this read through. So if we get some time, I would love to go over some of these, but uh, I, I do want to spend the balance of our time talking about what we are both prepared to discuss, which is um, some certain verses in second Nephi 25. And I think we should probably set this up by giving it some uh, literary context a little bit before we discuss this verse, unless there's something else you wanted us. No, okay. I want to hear your, where you're going with this. Okay. So anyway, before we get all the way into it, Derek and I definitely want to discuss second Nephi 25 verse 23 in particular. I'll just go ahead because I didn't write that down. I'm going to look that up real quick and give that a little read. And it's important never to read these verses out of context. You have to see where the flow of the argument is going, where it's been and, and read it in context. Yeah. Definitely. That's one of the things I made uh, I made sure to do in discussing this verse. Now, I love this verse, but not for the reason that a lot of people tend to love this verse. This is verse 23. Quote, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. So, the simple reading and traditional interpretation of verse 23, that grace comes chronologically after we have expended our best efforts. That is the least likely correct interpretation, even though it is often provided as a kind of a, a, a proof text on mm -hmm. the role of grace in LDS theology. And probably one of the reasons why it's so often uh, used as fodder for criticism with regards to what the LDS church believes when it comes to grace. It's this theology of earning salvation that we seem to lean on when it comes to this verse. And uh, that can cause some problems. But to put this in the proper context, we should probably know a few things about what is going on in 2 Nephi 25, including the whole slew of Isaiah chapters that we just got finished reading. So... Nephi just finished emphasizing the importance of Isaiah's prophecies regarding the scattering and gathering of the members of the house of Israel and, uh, and the, role of the, the role of the Messiah among them. And then Nephi, check this out in verse 8. This was the first clue I had. Wherefore, they are of worth unto the children of men, and he that supposeth that they are not unto them will I speak particularly and confine the words unto mine own people. For I know that they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days. For in that day shall they understand them. Wherefore, for their good, their good, I, have I written them. Did you catch that, Derek? Well, it's written to his own people, and it's written to people in the latter days. Yes. I actually want to, uh, I want to specify still his, his people in the latter days, because I think that'll be important later. And what I actually want to do is contend that Nephi is actually speaking just to his people because that's what he says in this verse. And by the time we get to verse 23 and 24, we'll understand why that's significant. And in saying that, we can we can still liken this to us, but this literary context, I think, is important and worth considering as we seek to do so. 
So by the, by the, by the time we get to verse 23, here's what we are going to learn from Nephi. He emphasizes the importance of Isaiah's prophecies regarding the, you know, you talked about the hope, or sorry, the judgment, the scattering, and the hope, which is the gathering of the members of the house of Israel and the role of the Messiah among them. And he's also going to focus his plain words on those who don't think Isaiah's words are important, and he confines his words to his own people. Uh, Verse 12, we learn the house of Israel will reject the Messiah and be scattered until it believes in the Son of God. Then it will believe these things, presumably his writings and those of Isaiah and others in the record. Verse 20, we see Nephi reiterates the doctrine that there is no other name save Jesus Christ through which salvation can come. And verse 21, we see that Nephi knows his records will be preserved and passed down to a seed. So the the writers of the, of the record labored diligently so that their posterity and brethren can believe in Christ and be reconciled with God, which we see in verse 23. And that begins for we labored diligently to write. Now, hold up, hold up. We, we got it established. Who, who is we? Nephi just switched to first person plural without specifying who we is. The only other plural group mentioned in this chapter is, is uh, are the prophets, and we know they'll be prophesying of Jesus' mission. It could also be his brothers, Jacob and Joseph, who we found out in chapter 5 are consecrated as teachers. That that one makes more sense, I guess, given what's coming in the later verses, but I, I think it'll suffice to say that whoever we is, they existed before Christ. Now, uh, check out verse 24. There's a conjunction here, the words, and notwithstanding. <sighs> in there as well as uh, some parallelism and a lack of changing subject we which indicates that Nephi is still talking about and to his people all that evidence is that these two verses are linked reading verse 24 and notwithstanding we believe in Christ we keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled that conjunction notwithstanding is connected to the effort in verse 23 to persuade their children to believe in Christ yet they continue to keep the law of Moses until it is fulfilled why is that because it's all they can do right now so like my argument is that all we can do for Nephi and his people means the law of Moses the parallelism the the second thing I mentioned that actually matches this logic look at verse 24 again or sorry 23 and 24 believe in Christ a and be reconciled to God. B. Grace by grace we are saved. A. After all we can do. B. Notwithstanding we believe in Christ. A. We keep the law of Moses. B. And look forward with steadfastness unto Christ. A. Until the law shall be fulfilled. B. Look at what matches. All the A's are Christ and his grace. All the B's are the law of Moses. So what's that mean, James? I'ma tell you. They understood They understood that salvation came through the grace offered by the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that that salvation would come after all they could do, living the law of Moses in their current situation. They knew that the law of Moses alone could not bring them salvation, 
but they continued to observe its performances and ordinances for three primary reasons, that they had been commanded to do so, it would reconcile them to God, and it pointed them to Christ. So ultimately, they, Nephi, and them, they all knew that they were saved by the grace of Christ's atoning mission, which would uh, be fulfilled later. And they also already received bl- uh, the blessings of grace, doing all they could do, keeping the law of Moses. It's actually very Paul-esque when you think about it. They're not saying, or like Nephi is not saying, that you got a good works your way into the grace of God. He's actually saying that, yeah, they can't, they got to do all they can under the law of Moses because it's part of their covenant relationship to God, but it's only the grace of Christ that can save them. And I think that's the primary uh, takeaway for us in likening the scriptures for us to us. I don't know. What do you think? I think to some extent he's bracketing out the law of Moses and saying, well, I know it's temporary and it's kind of this little thing that's going to last from now until the coming of Christ. And that's kind of over here in another connection, uh, another compartment. But this whole thing about salvation by grace is universal and applies to all people. I think um, that's kind of how I'm taking it. Okay. Is that 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 salvation is by grace for everyone and this particularity about the keeping the law of Moses is only temporary mm-hmm. and he's he's stating that um, but the, everything else the belief in Christ that's the universal thing and that's the the place where grace connects is that all people are invited to come into Christ uh, whether or not they're of the covenant uh, people of, of Israel uh, they they're invited to believe in Christ and that's where he's going. And so he's contrasting belief in Christ, which, uh, which is, which is what he says in verse 23 is we're persuading people to believe in Christ and thus to be reconciled. And the reason for that is because we know we're saved by grace. Okay. And so that's where I connected is he's, he's connecting the grace with the, the believing in Christ. So I have some some thoughts. Are you ready for them? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. So a lot of what I do may seem to come out of nowhere, and I just want to empower people. And not everyone can be a um, have the same connection to the ac- the academy or, or scholarly work. But there's stuff that all of us can do, and even just a little bit of of something can help you own your own narrative and own your own agency and make sure that you're empowered to say hey look I can verify things for myself and my view now this may not be universal and we may not agree on this but my view is that in general when we look at the English text of the Book of Mormon and we're trying to figure out what words mean there's there's kind of two there's a two things you could do one is try to translate it back into Hebrew and see what it would have meant in the ancient context or you can say, well, um, let's look at what it would have meant in the 19th century context, because that we know a lot about. Okay. And and so what I'm going to do here, it may be a little bit, um, it may sound a little bit scary for people, um, but I think in the end it's faith-promoting. You just have to trust that the way the Lord works is through small and simple things. And what, let me just say what I'm not doing. What I'm not doing is source criticism. I'm not trying to identify sources that the ancient Nephites or Joseph Smith 
hypothetically could have used. What I'm trying to do is more lexicography, trying to figure out what the English words mean and what they would have meant to an average reader in 1830 when the Book of Mormon was published. Okay. And the key to this is remember that, that Joseph was translating. He's translating for a specific audience. And so he's translating these concepts and thoughts into the religious idiom of his day. Okay. I don't think that should be controversial. But he ends up using a lot of words that have no direct parallel in the ancient world, but have a high degree of coherence with what other Christians, the wording other Christians were using in the, in the 19th century. Mm. So that's kind of the, the scary piece to, okay. to get out of the way at first. I mean, that's not awful. But, like, thanks for prefacing. Well, people might think, like, some people will say, well, just Joseph made it all up, and he's just, you know, that's not where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. But it is it is the case that I think it's very curious to, to go back and look at words in the Book of Mormon that aren't found in the King James Bible, aren't found in, um, whose translations really aren't found in in ancient texts, and see, oh, this is this is very interesting. Uh, and this is true not just with individual words like priestcraft or probationary, which we never see in the Bible, but they're also very true with phrases. There are certain phrases that appear in the Book of Mormon that have a high degree of correlation with with the exact same phrases used by other preachers in the Second Great Awakening, other preachers and writers. For example, some of these phrases are infinite atonement. That's mm. not something I've ever read in the ancient world. Plan of salvation, demands of justice, condescension of God, all of those are used by other Christians in the decades and even the century before the publication of the Book of Mormon by okay. Christians who are trying to, you know, come up with, with words for these things, mostly Protestants. And one of the phrases that is used is, after all we can do. And so that has almost a stereotyped meaning and here's how you do that. Oh, I forgot to tell you how you do this. It's with Google Books. Google Books. Google Books. All so right. two of the two of the best glories for this is one the Oxford English Dictionary, which is very exhaustive and it documents almost every um, usage that has been observed of a word, every different sense, and it shows you quotations in context with years, so you know well when did this usage enter the English language. How widespread it is? Is it still used? Stuff like that. Okay. And uh, so here's what you do when you go to Google Books and pick books written up until 1829, which is what I did. And this is this is very similar to the work that Dan McClellan has done on this. Uh, he has found some different quotations, but all of these support the same thing. Is that when you look at the way people speaking English in the United States and England in the uh, early 1800s used the phrase after all we can do or after all they can do it really means one thing it really means despite interesting you can you can infer from all the context of these other usages that that's really what they meant there's a contrast between the direction of what you're doing and the result is the other direct and the the result is the other way so you, you can imagine something like a doctor saying after all we could do to save her she still died so she didn't die because of their efforts. She died after their efforts, but in the other direction. You know, what it, what it's saying is that everything they did to save her didn't work. Right. It was, it didn't achieve that goal. What actually happened was the opposite. 
And here's what we're saying is, is what I'm saying is that when you look at the evidence about the way the word after is used, and in fact the Oxford English Dictionary under definition 7b says, in spite of, comma, notwithstanding. Hmm. And they've, they've documented this use. One good use was in 1674. It said, after all this wheeling about, we are not a step further than we were. So it's not because, see, that's what a lot of saints try to do is they try to put the word because in there, that we're saved by grace because of all we can do, which that's uh-huh. not even grace. Grace is really these, this unmerited favor that, that just um, overflows from God's character to us out of love and, and mercy. And, and um, that's not grace. If you have to do something to do it, this is Paul's argument, really, in mm-hmm. Romans and Galatians. If it's, if it's by wages, if you earn it, it's not by grace. Right, right. So let's go. If you go to, um, let me pull up my, uh, my evidence. So here's one thing I did. I went into Google Books and looked up the phrase, after all they can do. And here's one from the New England farmer, right? The year 1822, New England, Samuel Dean, he said this. In this, It's a dictionary of like how to be a farmer. And it says, Farmers need not fear that they shall impoverish their land by clearing it of stones. For... After all they can do to a soil that is naturally stony, there will be stones enough remaining a little way below the surface to render the ground moist and warm. So he's saying, don't worry, you can clear as many stones as you want because after all the clearing you do, there's still going to be stones. Hmm. It's the other directions. No matter how much you do in this direction, the result will be in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And here's another, um, and you see this in religious language when you have Protestants defending salvation by grace alone, they actually use the phrase, after all, uh, after all we can do, or after all they can do. And then here's another example, just one more example. This is from the year 1823, The Character and Obligations of Christian Ministers um, by Thomas Barber. It says, let not the ministers of Christ, therefore, be surprised or dejected if, after all they can do to save them, many of their hearers persist and die in their sins. In the other direction again. In the other direction again. So it's like, after all you, if you're a minister, after all you do to save them, some people aren't going to be saved. Mm. And I think when you, I haven't found an exception to this, that whenever you have the phrase, after all you can do, or after all we can do, or after all they can do, it's always with the meaning despite. And you can go through Google Books and find these, find these instances. And I think really what Nephi is doing here is defending salvation by grace. He's not qualifying it in any way or reducing it to, oh, it's kind of by grace. Because a lot of people have, and I get why people misconstrue this verse because they oh, it's take, easy to do. They take the word after as oh, but it doesn't say after you do all you can. Uh-huh. It doesn't say after you have qualified by doing what you've done. It doesn't say because, or it doesn't say by grace we are saved if you do all you can. If would have been a big problem for this theory. Mm-hmm. But it's saying after, and it couldn't be chronologically after too. Just like after all we could do to save her, she still died. But even still, he could have worded that differently. He could have said something like, after you have done all you could do or something like that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Just, it, it's very interesting that 
this particular word choice is what he ultimately ended up with. Right. If, if the intention was to communicate chronology, he could have phrased this a lot differently. And I'm okay with chronology because we are saved in the end, not because of what we can do, but but we're going to do all we can, and it's uh-huh. not going to work, and then God's going to step in, even if it's afterward, mm-hmm. and save us anyway. And uh, But here's the thing. The other interpretation that we're saved by grace because of all we can do, if that's what Nephi meant, that was a bo- that would have been a bombshell, and he would have explained it better. He would have said, he would have gone on to, that is so contrary to everything else that's in this context. Like when he's talking about the great things that God has done for the children of Israel, um, salvation by faith in Christ, he even says back in um, 2 Nephi 2, verse 5, Mm-hmm. And men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil. And the law is given unto men. And by the law, no flesh is justified. Mm. Or by the law, men are cut off. So he's saying here, yeah, um, with language that echoes Paul, that you're not saved because of the law. You're saved despite the fact that you do everything you can. It's not good enough. And grace steps in. That's Mm -hmm. really what grace is in the New Testament. That's what grace is here for Nephi. So what do you think about these things? I think I've made a yeah. solid case. Yeah, I do think you made a great case. The thing that keeps coming into my mind, it, this is particularly with regard to the chronology of, you know, the word after. Yeah. You know, I would have to ask the question, like the primary difficulty I have with the question is the role of grace before we have done all we can do. Like that is one of the primary issues I have, one of the primary difficulties I have. And another difficulty I have is determining when we have done enough or our best in order to like for Christ to do the rest. You know what I'm saying? But that's actually my point is Nephi is say, what I'm saying mm-hmm. is that Nephi is saying what you do, it's never going to be enough. So even after you've done everything you can is not enough. Mm-hmm. So the question of when do I know if I've done enough is exactly the opposite of where Nephi is leading us. He's leading us to say that nothing we do is enough that even after you do everything you can, it's not enough, and you still need to be saved by grace, mm-hmm. not by merit or not by works. So we're willing to throw away this meaning of after as having anything to do with time. I don't. I, I still think that there's a time component to okay. it. For example, let's take this idea of after and the stones. Like after you have done all the stones, after you have taken out the stones, as many as you can, there's still going to be stones. Mm-hmm. So there's a chronology after there, but it's it really means despite. It's saying take, the act of taking out the stones from your field actually isn't going to take them all out. Mm-hmm. Trying to save yourself by doing everything you can does not work. That's why he's using the word grace. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of make sense? I'm still okay with the word after, but it's really con- it's kind of like the word after taxes. Like I have this many hundreds of dollars after taxes. It's not because of the taxes. <laughs> It's despite those taxes that I yeah. have, <laughs> I have it right. All right, and so I'm okay with it being chrono- You know, there's being a temporal component to it, but uh-huh. you still have to understand that it's something in the opposite direction. Right. You were trying to go in one direction with your effort, and that's what I. That's the thing I wanted to highlight. After is more making a separation. Yeah. Of it's more making. It's a term of separation more than a, more than it is a chronological marker, I suppose. Right, is what and I don't I'm think to... I, what I'm, I think you're getting at is it's not a prerequisite. It doesn't say you're saved right. only after. See right. that I would have a problem with. 
Okay, yeah. You know, it doesn't say you're saved if you do. It doesn't say because you do all you can. Mm-hmm. It says we're saved by grace after all we can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all we can do isn't, isn't, isn't going to work. What we can right. do isn't going to work. And even, even if we do all we can, it's not going to work. And we're, we're still saved by grace even after all we can do. Okay. That's how I would understand it. Got it, got it. That, 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 that's helpful. Thank you for clarifying that. And that's how this phrase, after all we can do, after all you can do, is used in, um, in the time of Joseph Smith. And it, it's used in religious works to, def- to contrast works with uh, grace. And, and so that's kind of my point, is we can actually get a handle on what these... And the logic behind my argument is Joseph is going to take these book of these copies of the Book of Mormon, printed in 1830, and given to people who are living in 1830. How are how in the world are they going to know what these words mean, mm-hmm. other than the way they've heard them? Right. They're not going to be scholars. They're not going to be people who who know the ancient context. They're going to be people who are using the religious idiom of their day that they know, and that's going to be the first thing they think. Mm. Mike. My contention is that every person reading this in 1830 would have interpreted it that way. Gotcha. As despite or not, notwithstanding or, or in the other direction is a, is a good way of saying that no matter what you do, even if you do all you can, it's still by grace. It doesn't have anything. To, you didn't earn it. And that's, that's really the fundamental meaning of grace. If you have to do something in order for grace to kick in, it's not it's by not grace. It's not grace. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people want to be have this perfectionist idea in the church culturally that that oh no i need to do everything i can first and then god will make up the difference but like i think brad wilcox says god doesn't make up the difference he He makes all the difference yes everything um and i really like what dieter uchtdorf said he um he talked about this in one conference talk very very beautifully clarifying this and he says after doesn't mean because and um, Uchtdorf really clarified that, that that it really is saved by grace, mm. and so that's and it really coheres with everything else he's saying in the rest of this chapter because he emphasized belief in Christ, and he brackets out keeping the the law. He's saying, well, we're just keeping the law because that's what we're doing until Christ comes, but that's not what saves us. Mm. It's the the belief in Christ that taps into. And helps us uh, be recipients of that grace. And even the gift of faith itself is an act of of grace. Mm -hmm. He talks about all the things that God has done for, you know, um, freeing them from Egypt, freeing them from the poisonous serpents, freeing them from problems in the wilderness. God is doing it all. And that's kind of his whole point is that that's we're saved by grace. Um, and grace is still still grace, and and belief in Christ is where he ends up going with that, and I think that applies to us pretty pretty strongly. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I was going with after all we can do. That's great. I think we can put that one to bed. Actually, yeah. I like that a lot. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. Thank you for and sharing. And I I just want to point out that the we changes. Um, it's hard to know exactly what the we means because when he says in the beginning of first verse 23, for we labor diligently to write, who's the we? I think it must be Jacob and Nephi and maybe Isaiah. It's the leaders who are writing scripture. 
Um, so for we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know um, that it is by grace that we are saved. And I'm wondering if the we actually changes reference here, which can happen in, in natural speech. My whole thing is that when he, by the time we get to that verse, Nephi suddenly goes from first person to singular to first person plural without explaining who it is that's joining him all of a sudden. You know what I'm saying? And up to this point, it's just been his people. That is when he like yeah, moves. I to think it. the first we is is probably Jacob and um, Jacob and Nephi, and maybe Isaiah. Well, yeah, Jacob and Nephi. They're the ones that are writing and trying to persuade the children. Right. At least right. what we have the record of. And the we later in the we later in the verse is probably his whole community. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, when he says we, like, who do we know? We know because of Second Nephi five that. Jacob and Joseph are consecrated teachers of the people. Like that's all we know mm-hmm. at this point in terms of who's teaching the people. Yeah. So that just leads me to believe that that particular we is probably referring to him and his brothers. And I don't know who would labor diligently to teach and to write to their children and brethren about Christ other than those three right there. Right. It's more in line with what follows. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And the we in verse 24 is very clearly the Nephite community because it's saying mm-hmm. we keep the law of Moses. Right, right. And that's that's really what's going on. But then in verse 26, and we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ. Mm. Yes, he's really literally talking about his community still, mm-hmm. um, or at least the writers of that community. Yeah. But we also do that too, and we can we liken that scripture unto ourselves. And I agree. We, and I think that there's room for saying we are saved by grace after all we can do is um, still true for us because we're also saved by grace and d- despite or not withstanding everything we do in the direction of, of good works, that's not enough and and grace is in the other direction and we're saved by grace. Mm-hmm. And there's this contrast here. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, I think, some of the hope because where where Nephi's going is is looking at Isaiah and seeing where judgment leads to hope. Judgment actually shows all of the wretchedness of our works doesn't work, and the hope comes in saying, "Well, God is gonna God's gonna do it." And I think within the context of Isaiah, he's feeding off of that and even quoting it sometimes. Yeah. In chapter twenty five, to say, "Look, that no matter what you do, um, all the good works you do, it, that's not enough." God's going to have to come in and give you this peaceable kingdom where the wolf lies down with the lamb. That's in I, Isaiah, um, where is it? Isaiah 11, I think. Or, I mean, I'm not going to check you right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's in, uh, yeah. It's in there. And we know it's in, in there. And then the um, in Isaiah 2, which he also quotes, is the whole swords into plowshares thing. Um. And I, I love those. This is this is the hope, the vision that he's giving to inspire people. And that's, I think, to say, to say that you're saved by grace only after or because of all you can do. That's a slap in the face of hope. It it doesn't make any sense in this context. Considering the purpose of the atonement, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's the other thing is a lot of Protestants will point to this and say we're not saved by grace. That's actually what it says. It says we are saved by grace. Mm-hmm. 
and other Protestant writers in the in the 1700s and 1800s used that very phrase the same way to say that it's that we're saved by grace, despite all we can do, after all we can do, whatever what we do that doesn't save us. We're saved by grace, and and these other Christian writers are using this phrase the exact same way. Mm. So that's kind of all I had I had to say about about this. No, it's great. Like I think we can uh, definitely put this to bed. I really like what you had to bring to the table. It was uh, a very thorough explanation that allows us. Like I like it because it like it allows me to liken this more effectively to to you know myself and to everybody. Because here, like what I'm thinking of, I obviously shared. I was thinking of just the Nephite people, um, but this particular reading allows me to read intention into the text for like everybody, you know. Yeah, and my whole point in saying this long thing is to empower people. You can do the same thing. There's nothing like magical about me. You can go to Google Books and type in "I want to restrict the dates from 1600 to 1829" and see how a word or phrase gets used in English in that time period. Mm. And uh, I think it's very interesting. Definitely. You can search the phrase "infinite atonement" and 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 see how it's used by other Christians at that time. And other phrases, you'll these things will will pop out. And like I said, this isn't to say that those are sources for Joseph. What's what I'm saying is that Joseph translated the text into the religious idiom of his day because it was written for that day. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really talking about is the reception of the Book of Mormon. How would these words have been received by an average reader in 1830? And I think that's the goal is is to figure out and kind of the the cry the maybe touchstone or, or the really key of what what the Book of Mormon means is, well, what would it have been saying to someone in 1830 who just stepped off the street and got it, knowing only the English that they knew at the time? Mm-hmm. Definitely, a, uh, definitely a thing to consider as we move forward in reading the Book of Mormon and also figuring out what the particular language and other idioms that we're going to see throughout the Book of Mormon mean so uh thank you for bringing that yeah. consideration to everybody's attention i hope we're going to be able to use that as we can cons- as we continue to go through the book of mormon is there anything else in the second book of nephi chapters 11 through 25 that merits discussion you kind of already went over verse uh, 26 i mean i wasn't going to say too much about that i just really like the verse because you know when people wonder if we're christians this is one of the first verses I threw at him. I'm just like the word Christ is in there four times. And like, this is ultimately the purpose of the entire book of Mormon. It seems it's on the cover. You know, this is a book that is intended to be another Testament of Jesus Christ and to get people to believe in Christ. So I just like that in the book of Mormon, you have, you know, a single verse that mentions Christ so much and talks about Mm -hmm. why this book even exists. And it ultimately all points back to Christ. We say that several times on this show, that it is all about Christ, that it all points to Christ, that all the prophets, their purposes is to point us to Christ. Yeah. You know, we talked about that a lot when we uh, talked about the words of Paul. Like when we read the Pauline mm-hmm. epistles, we talked a lot about how he always deferred to Christ. He rarely, if ever, deferred to his own apostolic authority. He always pointed to Christ. When he rebuked Peter, he pointed to Christ as his authority. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is about Christ. When we talked about prophets, when we briefly discussed on several instances on the show, the fallacy of prophets we talk about the purpose of prophets being to bring us to Christ so like 
I, I hope people, as they continue to study the Book of Mormon, as they consider, as they continue to go to general conference, as they continue to go to church, that they are able to see all the little ways, all the ways the organization, the people in the church, the leaders, the books, all the texts that we have, everything that's canonized and not canonized, the ultimate purpose of all of it is to direct us toward Christ. And as long as we're heading in that direction, we're good. Yeah, and one of the things that other Christians like to say to us is, oh, but that's a different Christ. And uh, and part of the flaw with that is they seem to be very... Um, not very familiar with either the Bible or the Book of Mormon or our other texts because when you look at, there's a sense in which when you look at James or Paul in the New Testament, they have a little bit of a different angle on Christ. Or if right. you look at the four gospel writers, they're actually in some ways preaching a different Christ. And it's not just like a minor detail. It's some thematic and topical parts of their agenda that goes through the whole gospel that's different. For example, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus' final words on the cross are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, one of, of tragedy and one of, of defeat and one of, of, of embarrassment. And, but you would never have the John, John's Jesus, the, gospel, the Jesus of the Gospel of John, would never have said that. In that case... John's Jesus is with God in the beginning, is in control. He he actually says in John, Jesus says in John, I'm no, no one's taking my life from me. I'm laying it down. Like I'm in charge here. And it's the tragedy that you get in Matthew and Mark is is not at all the same in in John. And that's just one way, one detail where you've got a just a radically different perspective. Now, I like these different perspectives because what a lot of people think is, oh, if I could just have Kind of like Joseph's first vision. Mm -hmm. Joseph got this direct vision of Jesus. And in many ways, I actually treasure what we've got in the scriptures more than if I had a, 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 a personal visitation I see. by Christ. Like if I had a personal visitation of by Christ, I don't think I would get as much usable info or as much... Um, helpful details or I wouldn't get as much as I get in the scriptures because a it would be probably overwhelming B I probably wouldn't understand the significance of it until years later but most importantly C when I look at the testimonies about Christ in the Bible it gets filtered through someone's actual life and that I think is gold and if Jesus showed up in all his glory I'm like well mm -hmm. what do I do I mean that doesn't I guess I guess I get overwhelmed by this this glory <laughs> but what what's in the in the scriptures is so much more useful because you're getting someone's testimony you're getting it through their eyes and i think you get a connection there that you don't get if you just see jesus directly like like well what what does that mean right but i think it's so beautiful that we have the scriptures and yeah. i think there's uh there's something to be said there i i don't regret the fact that i haven't had a first vision type experience I don't need one. I probably wouldn't help me. I would probably just be very confused and not know what's going on. And I get I get more Christ in the scriptures mm -hmm. than I would through this first vision if I had a first vision thing. Interesting. I learned this is something new I'm learning about you, Derek. So Yeah, because if you look at Joseph's first vision, he 
still was confused for many years and, and didn't know exactly what was going on. and Didn't know what to do for at least another three, four years or something like even that. Even major, major facts about the Godhead he didn't understand until later um, mm-hmm. about whether they're separate personages or what exactly that nature is like. Um, a lot of it he wrestled with and yeah, it's, it doesn't, he didn't see, hear that, see that vision in 1820 and just automatically know everything. Right. So yeah, that's kind of, oh, I, I talk too much. No, it's all good, but you were right, Derek. Like despite us not having uh, very much in terms of news and the fact that we wanted to talk about the same thing for the Come Follow Me, we managed to use all of our time. Yay. We did it. <laughs> so proud of ourselves. I'm proud of us. Uh, this was a great conversation with regard to, uh, you know, as much of the books of Isaiah that we could cover and Second Nephi 25 and this crucial scripture that seems to just, you know, that we don't seem to totally understand in our theology. So I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it and, uh, you know, had this conversation. Anyway, any housekeeping before we wrap up? Well, you can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com, all one word. (laughs) (laughs) Shade. All of the shade. Well, it's probably because some addresses have little hyphens or little dots in them. Nope, nope, nope. Web addresses have never had spaces. I don't know why we never have have spaces, but they've had dots and hyphens in them. Hyphens. I would articulate the hyphen if there was a hyphen in our web address. (laughs) I would articulate the hyphen. Like that would go without saying. You need to put a hyphen in there. But yeah, all one okay. word, <laughs> Beyond the Black Podcast. Um, and share, we, we, you know what we forgot to do is post a little thing that's on our Facebook saying, uh, respond to this saying, where did you hear about us first? I promise you, Derek, I did not forget to do it. Just other stuff just keeps happening. Well, I forgot to do it. And I, I have to post it. it. So, like, it. so let's do that um, and then uh, see what, see where people have heard of us. Well, let's just hope nobody does anything newsworthy in the next couple of days. But I'll remember to do it next time we need something to put on the page there. Anyway, is that is that all? That's all that I know of. Sweet. Then uh, for the rest of y'all, we'll see you guys at the DMV at the Washington, D.C. Visitor Center. If you're going to be there for the conference, make sure you come say hi and definitely come to our panel on Christian social justice at 10 to 11. It will be at the Washington, D.C. Visitor Center. If you cannot join us there, please tune in on the Black LDS Legacy Facebook page. It will be live streaming there. That's amazing. It is amazing. I love technology. We will see you guys next week if we do not see you at the conference. Yeah, see you next week. Bye.